Psalm 104. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers of flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they may, might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for men to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to all his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships, the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you, to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. And let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let us go now to 1 Timothy 6, verses 13 through 16, which is our sermon text today. Here Paul writes to Timothy, saying, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, 
the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. At the conclusion of last Sunday's sermon, I stated that verses 11 through 12 and verses 13 through 16 of 1 Timothy 6 belong together in this section, in this whole section. Paul addresses his co worker Timothy and exhorts him to be faithful to Christ and to the work of the ministry. The passage has this as its singular focus Paul exhorting Timothy to be faithful to Christ and to the work of the ministry. I've divided this text into two because it is so rich. There's simply too much here to consume in just one sermon. You will notice that at the very beginning of verse 13, Paul continues to exhort Timothy to faithfulness with the words, I charge you. We do not use the word charge in this way very often. Here it means to order or to command or to announce what must be done. So kings and military commanders issue charges. Paul is here saying to Timothy, here is what you must do. And he's using very strong language, very serious language to communicate this. I charge you, Timothy, Paul says. And what did Paul direct Timothy to do? I charge you, look now at verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Keep the commandment. This was Paul's charge to Timothy. Here is what you must do. Here is my directive. Keep the commandment. And so we must ask, what did Paul mean when he said, keep the commandment? This little phrase has puzzled some. You will notice that Paul did not say, keep the commandments in the plural. If he said this, we might assume that he was referring to the Ten Commandments or maybe to the Two Commandments which summarize them. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. But no, instead he wrote, keep the commandment in the singular. So we must ask, which one? Which commandment, Paul? I think it might help to know that the word translated as commandment can also be translated as order or commission. Keep the order, Timothy. Keep the commission. And I think that is the sense here. Timothy was to keep the order or the commission. And so Paul was not merely urging Timothy to keep one particular commandment, this one or that one, but more generally, he was urging Timothy to follow through on his commitment to follow Christ and to serve as a minister within Christ's church. He was to stay true to the Christian faith. He was to stay true to the gospel and to all of its ethical demands. So although commandment is in the singular, it has a collective sense to it. Keep the commandment means keep the Christian faith. Keep believing upon God and Christ and doing what God requires of you generally. It's a very generic, it's a very broad charge that Paul is issuing to Timothy here. Follow through on your commitment to Christ and His church. You know, when a person hears the gospel, comes under the conviction of sin, turns from their sin and places their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, they are to be baptized. Water baptism is a sign of that person's fellowship with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. 
I think you could see how that is symbolized in water baptism, can't you? The one baptized goes under the water just as Christ went into the grave. They stay there for just a moment. And then they are raised just as Christ was raised from the dead. Those who have faith in Christ have fellowship with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And baptism, water baptism, is a sign of that. And it is also a sign of being engrafted into Him. When we believe upon Christ, we are joined to Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are united to Him. And through Him we are reconciled to the Father. Baptism is also a sign of this. We are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism also signifies the remission of sins. Water is used by us all the time to wash dirt away. And the waters of baptism signify that the stain of sin has been removed through faith in Christ because He has shed His blood for us. And lastly, baptism is a sign that the person has given up himself unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Again, symbolically the person has gone into the grave, but they've been raised anew. And they are saying through the waters of baptism that they will walk now in newness of life. All of that truth is signified in the waters of baptism. And so we must see that there is a great deal of symbolism. The new birth is symbolized. Union with Christ is symbolized. And so too the washing away of sins. All of that is received by God's grace and through faith in Christ alone. Water baptism this is, is the sign of these things. But notice this. Not only are the benefits that come to those who have faith in Christ symbolized in baptism. No, the one baptized does also make a profession and a commitment. This is the thing that I wish for you to notice this morning. In baptism, the one baptized does also make a profession and a commitment. Through the waters of baptism, the person baptized is saying something. They are saying, I believe. They say, Jesus is my Lord. And they say, having now given up myself to God through Jesus Christ, I will live and walk in newness of life. In the waters of baptism, what God has done for us through faith in Christ is signified. The gospel is symbolized there. But in the waters of baptism, a profession of faith is also made along with a commitment to follow after Christ from that day forward. Question 101 of our catechism elaborates on this aspect of baptism and asks, What is the duty of such who are rightly baptized? So those who are rightly baptized, what is their duty now? The answer is this. It is the duty of those who are rightly baptized to give up themselves to some particular and orderly church of Jesus Christ that they may walk in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. So when a person is baptized upon profession of faith, they are baptized into Christ, which means that they are also baptized into the church, which is His body, His temple, His bride. And having been baptized into Christ and His church, they are to go on walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord Blameless. This is their duty. This is what they are, in fact, committing themselves to. Now, you may be thinking to yourselves, how did we get on this subject of baptism all of a sudden? That was a very abrupt and harsh transition, wasn't it, to go from 1 Timothy 6 to talk about baptism? What does this have to do with the text we are considering? Well, a lot, I think. When Paul charged Timothy, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. I believe he was urging Timothy 
to follow through on his commitment to Christ, the commitment that he made in the waters of baptism. This charge that we find in verse 13 is a reiteration of what was said earlier in verses 11 through 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Do you hear that? So take hold of the eternal life, Timothy. That eternal life about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Some think this might refer to Timothy's ordination to the ministry. And that might also be in view. But it seems more natural to think of Timothy's baptism. That is what Paul, I think, is reminding him of. Don't forget the profession that you made, the confession that you made in front of all of those witnesses, Timothy. I think he was bringing to mind Timothy's baptism. It was in the waters of baptism that Timothy would have made the good confession concerning eternal life in the presence of many witnesses. So when Paul continues to exhort Timothy, and when he issues this charge saying, keep the commandment, he means keep the faith that you professed in the waters of baptism along with all of its ethical demands. Continue to believe in Christ and do all that God requires of you. And then Paul adds these words, unstained and free from reproach. Unstained means that Timothy was to maintain moral purity. He was to avoid blemishes on his moral character. And when Paul says free from reproach, he means that Timothy must be above criticism. Of course, this means valid criticism and not invalid criticism. Christ himself was criticized by others. Men hated him and slandered him, but unjustly. A Christian is to be Free from reproach, meaning above criticism that is valid and justified. So, brothers and sisters, this charge was delivered originally to Timothy as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I hope that you would agree that this charge is applicable to you and me and to all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. All Christians are to be exhorted to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. All must be urged to follow through on their profession of faith and their commitment to follow Christ made in the waters of baptism. So to those of you who have been baptized in Christ Jesus, I may ask, are you keeping the commandment? Are you keeping the faith with its ethical demands? Are you keeping it unstained and free from reproach. Think about your baptism. If you are in Christ Jesus, and if you are a member of this church, you can remember your baptism, can't you? You can picture it. You could probably picture the day, the location. You could picture the many witnesses that were present all around to witness your baptism. So imagine your baptism. Think of all that was symbolized when you were in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, taken under the water and brought up again. Think of what was signified. There your union with Christ was signified. There the washing away of your sins was signified. And there the death of your old self and the birth of your new self was signified. All of these benefits, union with Christ, the forgiveness of sin, the new birth, they came to you, not by the waters of baptism, but by the grace of God through faith in Christ who lived for you, died for you, and rose again for you. He ascended for you. But, but in baptism all of these benefits were signified. 
And so I'm asking you to remember that, to think of your baptism. And then ask, and I'm, am I walking accordingly now? Am I walking now as one united to Christ, as one who's been washed in His blood, as one who's been made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you walking accordingly? Think of your baptism. And this time, do not think about the symbolism, but consider the profession of faith that you made there in the waters. Consider what it was that you said before God and men. You said, I have faith in Christ. You said, Jesus is my Lord. You said, through the waters of baptism, I will follow Him all the days of my life. You made this profession. You made this commitment before God and man. And I am asking you, are you keeping that commitment, friends? That is what Paul is urging when he says, Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. As I have said, this passage applies to all who have professed faith in Christ. But there were three groups of people that came especially to mind as I was reflecting upon this text. One, I thought of those who have been baptized who are still young. I thought of those who have been baptized who are still young. Perhaps you made a credible profession of faith at the age of 12 or 13 and were baptized upon profession of faith. And now you are maybe 16, 17, or 18 years old. You are no longer a child. You are emerging into adulthood and you are preparing for independence. And I am saying to you, if you have been baptized and you are still young, do not forget your baptism, brothers and sisters. Do not forget the profession and the commitment you made. Do not forget that God's name was set upon you in the waters of baptism. Remember, what we are learning in the Ten Commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. His name was set upon you, and you must, from this day forward and from that day forward, take that seriously. God's name is set upon you. Do not take His name in vain. Do not be careless with God's name. And I speak to those who are young and emerging into adulthood, because you will be making some very important decisions in the years to come. Decisions that will greatly impact the rest of your life. You must be very careful to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. You will need to decide to follow through on that commitment that you made to Christ as a young person. Two, and very briefly, I think of those who have been baptized who are now old. And to you I say simply this, finish strong. Lay a hold of that eternal life uh, that you made the good profession concerning in the presence of many witnesses. For some of you, I said, remember your baptism and you had to go way, way back. And that is a blessing. But for those of you who are advanced in years, in years I say, finish strong. Finish the race that God has set before you. Run the race and bring honor to God all the days of your life. And three, I thought of those who have been baptized, who are not here, nor are they present in any other rightly ordered church of Jesus Christ. Now, how will they hear this? I'm not entirely sure. Perhaps they will stumble across this teaching online. Perhaps some of you will recommend it to them. But to those who have been baptized upon profession of faith, who are not joined to a true church, I say, you are not keeping the commandment unstained and free from reproach. To be baptized into Christ involves being baptized into His church, as I have already said. We are to remember that the church is the household of God. The church is His flock. The church is His temple. 
And do not miss this simple observation, baptism, which marks the beginning of the Christian life, and the Lord's Supper, which signifies continuing in the Christian faith, are ordinances that Christ has given to the church. The church is to, be admin- is to administer these ordinances. The elders of the church are to administer these ordinances in the presence of the church. They are not for individuals living in isolation, nor are they ordinances for the family. No, instead they are ordinances of the church. They signify our collective union with Christ and with one another. Do not believe the lie that you may walk with Christ alone when it is within your power to join yourself to an orderly and visible church. Do not forsake the assembly. The Christian life is not to be lived in isolation. And if you have believed the lie that that the Christian may walk alone if they so choose, it is time to repent. To find a church where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are administered, you're to join yourself to that church. If you are willingly walking alone, this is not true and biblical Christianity that you are practicing. You have gone astray. You have wandered from Christ. You have wandered from His fold. It should be clear to all that I'm not thinking of those who are providentially hindered from joining themselves to a true Christian church. Uh, There are places in the world where no such churches exist. Have you ever thought of that? How blessed you are to be living in a land where there are many good churches all about you. Uh, There are places in the world where no such church exists, but maybe there are a few scattered Christians there. And there are some who are truly hindered from coming into the Lord's house due to illness or some other thing. I'm not thinking of these situations, but of those who have professed faith in Christ, who willingly and for no good reason neglect the fellowship. And I belabor this point a bit because our culture is filled with many such people. In some respects, the churches are to blame. The gospel that has been preached in this land over the past 50 years or more has been watered down and is highly individualistic. Sinners have been urged to walk the aisle and say a prayer when they repent and believe upon the Lord. But what does the Bible say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And even in those churches where baptism is administered as a sign of faith and repentance, many divorce it from membership in the local church. And so those baptized wander off never to be seen again. And I am saying this is not right, brothers and sisters. It is no wonder why many are confused. It is no wonder that many think of their faith in this highly individualistic way. But there are also many who know better. They know that they should be joined to a local church, but for one reason or another, they neglect the fellowship. If you are listening, listening to this sermon, even right now, from the comfort of your living room, and you are able to go and join yourself to a local church, you need to do that very thing. Stop listening to this sermon online and resolve to next Sunday go join yourself to a local church. This is the biblical way. This is the way that God calls us to walk in this world. And I do suspect and even fear that this trend that I'm here referring to will only grow in the years to come. I think that Christians will be tempted, perhaps even pressured, to neglect the fellowship all in the name of love and safety. Now, brothers and sisters, we cannot neglect to assemble together on the Lord's day.
What is the duty of such who are rightly baptized? Our catechism is right to summarize the teaching of Scripture, saying it is the duty of those who are rightly baptized to give up themselves to a particular and orderly church of Jesus Christ, that they may walk in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, Paul says. That is the charge. And how long are we to do this for? What is the duration? Answer, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. Notice here that Paul did not claim to know when Christ would return. One thing he did know for sure is that it would be at the proper time, at just the right time, Christ will appear. And no one knows the hour. God only knows. And we are not to concern ourselves with speculations concerning the day or the hour. That knowledge belongs to God. It is not for us. So what are we to concern ourselves with? We are to concern ourselves with the charge. We are to be faithful, to keep the command. We are to persevere in the faith and do all that God requires of us. This was true for Timothy, and it is true for you and me. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is to say, until He returns to raise the dead, to judge, and to usher in the new heavens and earth, bringing His people safely home, we are to be found faithful. This is where we are to invest ourselves. We are to invest ourselves into faithful living. We are to keep this charge. We are to keep the command that Christ has given to us. Let me make this one point of application under this portion of the sermon. This we are to do in good times and in bad. In times of plenty and in times of want. In times of freedom, also in times of persecution. Good times, uh, that is to say times of prosperity, times of freedom, are particularly dangerous for the people of God. Have you ever thought about that before? Good times are particularly dangerous for the people of God. For it is in the good times that God's people are tempted to love the world and the things of this world instead of God and the things of God. It is in good times that men and women grow comfortable and complacent. It is in the good times that Christians are prone to forget that this is not their home. Good times, that is times of prosperity and freedom, bring certain temptations and dangers to God's people. And bad times are also dangerous. For we know that many do shrink back from following Christ when doing so costs them the pleasures of this world. Perhaps the most dangerous of times for the church are those times of transition wherein the church goes from being favored to despised, or from despised to favored within the culture. The change can be very disorienting for the people of God if they are not prepared for it. I'm no prophet. You know that. I do not know what the future holds, but I do suspect that we are living in such a time as this. The church in this land has historically been held in high esteem, but I do believe that it will be more difficult to follow Christ in this place in the decades to come. I don't think you have to be a prophet to see this. Those who call themselves Christians but are willing to abandon the substance of the Christian faith, that is, sound doctrine and right practice, will not have such a hard time. But those with eyes to see can easily perceive that the Christian faith, that is, the true and biblical faith, is rapidly coming into disfavor in the broader culture. Are you aware of this? Do you see it all about you? And I am asking you, are you ready for that, brothers and sisters? I may be wrong. I actually pray that I am. 
The days ahead of us might be all bright and sunny. But if they are, it is still good for me to ask you, are you prepared for dark days? Are you prepared for dark days? It is always good to be prepared for dark days, brothers and sisters. Is your faith strong today? Do you have a true love for the right things today? Are you in love with God and the things of God above all else? Is your hope in the right place today? Are you hoping in God and Christ and in the promises of His Word? And where is your treasure, I might ask you? Where is your treasure? Where are the things that you most value and take pleasure in? Are they here on earth where moth and rust destroy? If they are, I'm afraid you will not fare well in the faith when the loss of those pleasures are threatened. But if your treasures are in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, then you will be able to truly say, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And so, are you prepared for dark days? Even if the days ahead of us are all bright and sunny, it is important for us to always be prepared for dark days. And the way to be prepared for dark days is to have a strong faith, to have our treasures in the right place, to have our hope in the right things. You know, I do hesitate even to speak in this way, knowing that some of you are plagued by worry and fear. And by no means do I wish to aggravate that. Instead, It is my objective to stir up within you a true and sincere love for God and a strong faith in Him. And as one of your pastors, I do feel responsible to prepare you for difficult days. My calling is to proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is the calling of the minister. Here I am quoting Colossians 1.28. That was Paul's objective To proclaim Christ with this objective in mind, to present all of the members of the church to Christ mature. And so, I ask you, are you strong in the faith even now? Are you strong in the faith? Have you really counted the cost? Have you forsaken the world? Are you willing even to suffer for the name of Christ? When we read Paul's charge to Timothy to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ... We should not forget that this was a very dangerous calling for Timothy. It was also a dangerous calling for other ministers of the gospel in those days and for those to whom they ministered. And neither should we forget that this calling is a dangerous calling for many of our brothers and sisters who live around the world to this present day. We have enjoyed great comforts in this culture, brothers and sisters. We enjoy life here. We enjoy freedoms. And I pray that it continues for generations to come. But we should at least be aware of the fact that it is not the norm. The people of God have suffered throughout the history of the church. And they do suffer in different parts of the world even to this day. And it may be that Christians in this land suffer in generations to come. How is it that the saints of God bear up under things like persecution? How do they bear up under the suffering? Well, they have a sincere faith, a very strong faith. Their treasure is in heaven. They know that this is not their home. And so let us be sure to have that foundation as our own, even today, while all is bright and sunny. 
So Paul's charge to Timothy was to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. The duration was until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice thirdly the witnesses that Paul calls forth. Paul called two witnesses to this charge. They are God and Jesus Christ. And what he says about these two witnesses is very, very significant, I think. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that Paul here calls witnesses? Uh, I charge you in front of these, God and Christ, and I am saying what Paul says about God and Christ here is very significant. Why did Paul emphasize these things? Of all the things that he could have said about God and Christ, why did he remind Timothy that God gives life to all things and that Christ made the good confession in his testimony before Pontius Pilate? Surely he has a reason for emphasizing these two things about God and Christ. The reason is this. Both of these truths are a great comfort and encouragement to the one facing the threat of persecution. Do not forget all that Paul had suffered on account of his testimony for Christ. He had suffered greatly. He would eventually be martyred. And do not forget that most of the other apostles also suffered greatly for their testimony. Timothy knew this. No doubt he knew this. Imagine being Timothy there in Ephesus. Maybe he wasn't experiencing persecution in the moment. But he watched his mentor, Paul, suffered greatly for his testimony. He was aware of the fact that the other apostles of Christ, many of them had already been killed for their testimony. They were at least on the run. They were persecuted. And here Timothy is thinking of himself. He is a leader within Christ's church. And so as Paul gives Timothy this charge, he calls these witnesses. And I think he says what he says about God and Christ in order to bring comfort and encouragement to Timothy. What he says is very important. It's as if Paul said to Timothy, Be faithful and do not fear, knowing that it is your God and mine who gives life. Man may kill the body, but God will keep you and give you life, body and soul, for all eternity. Our God is the God who gives life to all things. That is why he emphasizes this truth. And connected to this, he reminds Timothy of the good confession that Jesus made in front of Pontius Pilate. You will remember that it was Pilate that had the power, humanly speaking, to either have Jesus crucified or to set him free. There Jesus stood. In that moment, he could have compromised. He could have Denied that he was who he was, I suppose. Being given over to the temptations of the flesh, he could have chosen a different route so as to not endure the suffering that was before him. Pilate was the one who had the authority either to have him crucified or to set him free. But what did Jesus do? When he stood before Pilate, he did not shrink back from his calling, but made the good confession. He confessed that he was the King and the Son of God. He was faithful to the truth. And because he was faithful, we know that he was crucified. But... God raised him up. God gave him life. And that is the point, isn't it? That is the point. This is what Timothy needed to hear as he considered the, the challenges that were before him, the, the possibility of persecution, even to the point of death. This is what he needed to hear in order to endure 
He needed to be reminded that God gives life and that Christ was faithful. He was to follow in Christ's footsteps. Therefore, Christ was faithful even to the point of death. But God raised the Christ up and Timothy was to have the same hope. Paul charged Timothy in the presence of God who gives life to all things and Christ who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession so that Timothy might take courage and comfort in them. He was to hope in God who gives life and in Christ who God raised from the dead. Stated negatively, if we do not truly believe that God will give us eternal life through faith in Christ who died and rose for us, then we will not likely persevere in the face of persecution. We must truly believe that God gives life and that He raises the dead. We must. And so I ask you, do you believe that God gives life, brothers and sisters? Do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead by Him because He was faithful to the point of death? And do you believe that those in Christ will be raised on the last day to enjoy life eternal in the new heavens and earth? We talk about these things all the time. And here I am simply asking, do you believe it truly, sincerely? I pray that you do. It is this hope concerning the resurrection and life in glory that does move God's people to suffer the loss of all things that they may gain Christ and lay a hold of the eternal life that is found in Him. You know, I've been reading through the book of Job uh, devotionally. It's a very interesting book. It's also rather complex. Most people know it as a book about suffering, and it is that. It is a book about suffering. We know that Job, uh, though he prospered greatly, he suffered greatly. And he did persevere, even though his wife and his three friends gave him awful advice. But it is also a book about Jesus, and I think people often miss that. It is a book about Jesus, the Christ. It is about Jesus because Job is a type of Christ. Christ was the true and faithful servant of God who suffered even to the point of death, though he deserved it not. And it is also about Christ because Job placed his faith in him. Did you hear that? Job placed his faith in the Christ, though he lived some 2,000 years before the Christ was ever born. Job believed in the Redeemer and hoped even in the resurrection that would be made possible through him. This is what moved Job to faithfully bear up under so much suffering. Perhaps the most famous passage in Job, or at least I think it should be the most famous passage, is found in chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, where Job, after suffering very greatly, says... For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Did you hear that? It almost sounds like something that a New Covenant saint would write or say, doesn't it? Now, this was Job living perhaps in the days of Abraham or even before that, saying, I am not willing to compromise, to turn back, to curse God and die like my wife advised me to do. What a, what a wife, you know. Sounds a lot like Eve. I think that's the point. But I'm not willing to curse God and die or to turn back from the suffering. 
but I'm going to serve God faithfully all the days of my life. My hope is in the Redeemer. Job knew that a Redeemer would come. Job's hope was also in the resurrection, even though his flesh might, well, indeed would, perish and, and, and go back into the ground and turn to dust again. He had this strong confidence that he himself would, in his flesh, see God. He would stand before God. He had hope in the Redeemer and also in the resurrection. And I am saying we need to have this faith of Job, strong faith in Christ the Redeemer, and this strong hope in the resurrection, in life eternal, in the presence of God. Job had everything pleasant in his life stripped away from him, and yet he would not curse God. He would not turn his back on God. Why? His faith was in the Redeemer. His hope was in the life to come, and we need the same hope, the same faith as our own. Is this true of you? Is your hope in God who gives life? Is your trust in Jesus Christ who made the good confession before Pontius Pilate was crucified, buried, and on the third day raised? Do you believe that though your flesh be destroyed, those in Christ will be raised up at the end of time, will stand upon the earth with their Redeemer, and will along with Job see God in your flesh? I pray that you believe it. I pray that you truly believe so that you might persevere even in the dark day, in the day of trouble. We have considered the charge, the duration, and the witnesses. Now let us very briefly consider the goal, which is the glory of God. We must keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach so that God gets the glory. That is the goal that is set before us in this passage. Listen to this marvelous doxology beginning in the middle of verse 15. There we read, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The goal of all of our obedience is the glory of the triune God. We wish to see Him honored. We wish to see Him rule over all things. Indeed He does. He is the blessed and only Sovereign. There is nothing outside of His control. And He is indeed, even presently, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But not all honor Him as such. Many do still rebel against Him and blaspheme His name. But at the judgment, all of this will be set straight. The new heavens and earth will be occupied only by those who have bowed the knee to Him through faith in the Redeemer that He has provided. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That is Revelation 22, 14 through following. It describes the new heavens and new earth to us. God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and He alone has immortality that is an interesting little statement there. He alone has immortality. We know that others besides God will enjoy immortality. Those in Christ will not be threatened by death. They will live in paradise forever and ever. But no one has immortality in the way that God has immortality. God is immortal because God is life. We live because God has granted life to us. But no one or nothing gives God life. He is life. He is immortal. 
And He dwells in unapproachable light. We are told here that no one has ever seen or can see Him. You think, but didn't people see God uh, in the Old Testament times? Didn't they see visions of God? Well, yes, God has manifested Himself to us. He has revealed Himself to us so that we might know Him truly, but no one has seen Him as He is. No one knows God exhaustively. It is impossible for the creature to fully comprehend the Creator. It is impossible for that which is finite, that is, you and I, being so limited as we are, to fully grasp that which is infinite. Our God is awesome, brothers and sisters. He is marvelous in ways that words cannot even express. We are to live for His glory and honor. We are to seek His dominion over all things. And why do you think Paul concludes this section wherein he exhorts Timothy to faithful obedience with this doxology? Why does he conclude with this doxology? It's almost as if he gets carried away with it. In fact, you can almost feel that in the text where he's just moved to to just give praise to, to the triune God. But I think it was also to help Timothy and we along with him to take our eyes off of the troubles of this present evil age and to set them upon God who is glorious and full of life. Do you see how Paul accomplishes that here in this text? Keep the command, Timothy. Keep the command. Even in the face of persecution, even at the threat of death, keep the command. And he concludes this whole section of exhortation by directing Timothy's eyes to the glory of God. Live for that, Timothy. Live for the glory of God and long to be in His presence for all eternity. Everything in this world is temporary, fading, and given to corruption. Don't cling to it. Cling to God. Pursue Him. Make Him your delight. And live for His glory alone. For He will never fade. In Him there is life abundant. In Him there is life evermore. Let's bow together for a word of prayer, brothers and sisters. Our Father in Heaven... Make us strong as your people. Make us faithful. Make us faithful in the little things today. Help us to trust you in those little things. And I do pray that you would sustain us, Father, even in times of difficulty, even in the dark day. May our faith be strong. May we persevere, even if we face suffering in this world. God, I pray that you would be our delight and that we would long to see you and to live for your glory above all else. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.